Please turn in your Bibles uh, to Luke chapter 16. I'll be reading verses 19 through 31. It's on page 876 of the Pew Bible. This is in the English Standard Version. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. The word of the Lord. You know, I heard a story recently about a young father who was patiently trying to teach his 10-year-old child how to mow the yard. <clears throat> and it was his regular practice to have him alongside him with the basic chores until one day when he was convinced that he could do it for himself. So he carefully instructed the little man with two assignments. Number one, mow the yard. And number two, get rid of all the weeds in his mother's flower beds. So feeling like a great parent for entrusting his child with that much responsibility, the father went inside the house to work on some other things. Well, in what he reported later as something feeling like too short of a time, the little boy comes bounding in announcing that he had completed both tasks and could he now joyfully go and play Xbox with his friends. Wow, the father said, that was kind of quick. Would you mind if I checked your work? So as the two stepped out the front door, immediately the father's jaw dropped in shock and horror. Yes, the lawn was completely mowed, but his wife's flower garden was completely obliterated. Not one flower intact. What in the world did you do? The father asked. Well, you told me, Dad, to get rid of the weeds in the flower beds, so I just used the lawn mower to cut them right down. Look, y'all, we're going to start a series today that we've entitled My Strange Bible, How to Properly Read and Study Scripture. And I want to introduce this topic this morning by asserting a simple premise. For many people, when they begin to wrestle with the Bible's claims about itself, they often do so from a framework of understanding that wishes that the Bible would be something that it never intended to be. Think about it. That little boy in the story was confused without even realizing it. In his mind, the lawnmower was a great tool for cutting grass. So why wouldn't it work for de-weeding the flower beds as well? Well, simply stated, because the lawnmower is the wrong tool for the job when we come to delegate flower beds. 
Well, likewise, when a modern person picks up the Bible, maybe she's looking for relevance in her life. She always oftentimes wants the Bible to be something that it's not. And the category error can create all kinds of problems. Our uh, friends over at the Bible Project offered at least three ways in which we make this category error. Number one, they suggest that sometimes we look at the Bible in the hopes that it is a tool for being a theology reference book. Kind of like a Christian Wikipedia, if you will, where we sort of flip through and find the information that we need rather than considering it cover to cover. In other words, these folks treat the Bible like it's an expert resource on theological considerations about how we should structure the church or how maybe we should deal with the problem of human suffering or even to understand Jesus's humanity and deity. Now, what's interesting is the Bible has lots to say about all three of those kinds of topics. But if you're using the Bible in that way, oftentimes it will lead to bad readings of it. Secondly, they also offer people who look at the Bible as if it's a life rule book. You've got a lot of folks who come to the Bible and appeal to it for the basis of their moral beliefs or maybe justification for their, their political conservatism or progressivism, whatever. And of course, we would say that deriving moral principles from the Bible is absolutely necessary. Otherwise, our arrival at moral preferences would come only from our own authority. But the Bible even begins by asking this question of Adam and Eve, whose authority you're going to listen to? Will it be God or will it be your own? That's what the whole Garden of Eden thing was about. But instead of only answering this and other moral questions with a set of rules, the Bible actually invites us into this dynamic process of aligning our ethics, as it were, with the character of God. How does it do that? By inviting us into a story. A story, telling a story with Jesus at the center. Finally, these friends mentioned that the Bible is oftentimes used by people as a devotional resource. You know, the Bible who we hope connects us to the very presence of God. I love reading the Bible, someone might say, because of how much it inspires me when I do. But invariably, whenever you hear people talk that way, they're, they're reading kind of the pleasant sounding places in the Bible, aren't they? They're looking for the feel good stuff that sort of leaves you with a strong emotion. Well, you either avoid the rather challenging stuff or you miss the larger full story that the Bible is telling. So this summer, Brian and I want to walk through the doctrine of Scripture and try to highlight some principles uh, that we think will help us understand what kind of tool is the Bible exactly. So as we grasp its nature and purpose, we'll deploy it in our lives better and be better equipped to represent it to the world and also have a clear understanding of how it might apply to our lives. So this morning, though, we want to take the first topic is this. We know that the Bible claims authority for itself as the Word of God. What we rarely realize, though, is that is going to mean, by definition, that the Bible has proof for its being so built right into it. The theologians have referred to this as the self-attesting nature of the Bible. And I want to unpack what that means around three particular topics. First of all, we want to look at the Bible and certainty. We want to look at Bible and sufficiency, and then the Bible and authenticity, okay? So number one, let's dive into this whole question of certainty. I'm assuming that Luke 16 is a semi-familiar parable to you. I'm not sure about you, but every time I heard the story of the rich man and Lazarus, it, it mostly focused on the doctrine of eternal damnation and hell. And I think the first half certainly leans in that direction. You have a rich man 
who, because of his ignorance and desire to keep the poor away from his life and his neighborhood, he lands himself in eternal punishment. And that, of course, is an interesting topic all by itself. I don't think it's actually the central point of the parable, however, in my humble opinion. I think it begins really in verse 27. Look at it again. What Lazarus says is, is then I beg you, Father, to send, the rich man, sorry, send Lazarus to my father's house because I've got five brothers. I'd like him to warn them so that they don't come to this place of torment. All right, think about that question that request he makes of Father Abraham. The first thing to realize is, yes, the rich man has still not learned his lesson. <laughs> he's ordering Lazarus around even when he's in the midst of eternal punishment. But you know what? Set that aside for a second. Because what actually is also happening, though, is he's asking for something that's an objective good, is it not? It is a good thing for this rich man's brothers not to land themselves in the place where he has. Maybe his brothers are skeptics. Maybe, maybe they ignore the poor or don't obey God, whatever. But the heavenly messenger then responds to them, this character of Father Abraham in verse 29, and says this, well, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. Okay, pause for a second. How satisfied would you have been with that answer? That's the question. <laughs> you know, I have this vivid memory of being a child and lying in my, uh, in my bed at night. For some reason, these questions always come to me at night. And wondering, pondering through the great eternal mysteries of the universe and thinking to myself, why is it is the stuff that I say I believe is right and other people are wrong? Like, how do I know? And I used to pray very earnestly that God would cause an angel to come into my room at night. You know, think some, some heavenly apparition would just appear in my room, poof, look at me and say, Les, it's all true. And then poof, he could go back to doing whatever it is he was, do he was doing before, right? And then I would walk away and never really doubt again. So what is it for you? <laughs> I needed an angel. Never got one, by the way. Oh, that'd make a much more interesting sermon illustration if I did. But what is it that you would say is your final say-so that if you could have it or experience it would put to rest any doubts you might have about the Bible. I was listening to a, a debate between a Christian and a very prominent atheist by the name of Dr. Gordon Stein, philosophy professor, professor from UCAL Berkeley, who in the midst of the debate was asked this very question, what would it take for you? And Stein said, well, I don't know. If, if, I, if this uh, podium that I'm standing in front of began to levitate in front of me and float across the room, I would concede that the laws of nature had been broken and there must be a God. All right, maybe. What would it be, though, for you? What would you look and say is that thing that would finally convince me? Because here's the problem. God, through the character of Father Abraham, seems to be saying that those kinds of proof, whether it's a heavenly apparition or a podium floating across the stage, they don't work. They really don't work. Because look at the rich man's response in verse 27. No, no, no. But if someone from the dead goes to them, then they'll repent. Ah, now we get to it. The rich man says to himself, he's like, look, if you want to know my path to certainty, to really say that I know, I mean, really know that what you're saying is true, and my five brothers would embrace it as well, I need a resurrection. That would be cool. Let's be honest. This rich man is basically saying, though, look, Moses and the, and the prophets are fine. What I really need, though, is this. So that's the first question from this first point. What do you believe you need in order for your doubt to disappear? 
What would you ask for if you could? What standard have you set up before God that you insist upon first before you entertain anything that's written in his word? Okay, so that's the first question. I want to enter this topic of certainty. But secondly, though, notice that there's a question of sufficiency that's entertained here. Because Jesus is making this point that when it comes to being in good stead with God, if, you, if you're one of the five brothers people who doesn't want to land in this place, all you need is the Bible. The only way to keep yourself from falling into this place of torment is to listen to Moses and the prophets. By the way, that would have been a New Testament person's way of referring to the Old Testament. First five books and everything else, Moses and the prophets. The Bible, in other words, is what they're saying. All that's what you need for life and health and faith and the practice of godliness is contained within the pages of this book, Jesus says. Now look, I find it more than a little interesting <laughs> what Father Abraham did not say. What he didn't say was, look, what your brothers really need is to be convinced that the word of God is true so that or before they can embrace it and then learn to live their life by it. That's not what he says. He just says, this is what you need. In other words, the convincing mechanism of belief is obtained by listening to the Bible. And that ought to sound weird to you, but hold on to it. Our creed says that the scripture is to be the only rule of faith in life. The Bible is enough, it's saying, for every intellectual, emotional, and volitional objection that might be put up against it. That's what it's saying. In other words, there is nothing that you could receive from any other source that's going to be more valuable to you in your journey towards the spiritual life than what you get from Scripture. If you go back to the Old Testament to the Psalms, Psalm 19 is a, is a lyrical poem that talks to us about what the Bible does for us. It says there that the Bible revives the soul. It says it leads us into the truth, even simple people. It says it brings us joy to know. It brings us joy to find the word. What's the point? The point is, is that when you ask yourself where you are spiritually and consider what it is that you need the most, what do you come up with? <laughs> because Father Abraham is hinting, you don't need a new book on five steps to a better prayer life. You don't need a more lively and exciting praise and worship service. You don't need some experience with the Holy Spirit, uh, Spirit in second blessing or, or maybe a, a spiritual discipline regimen that's new or, or a new accountability group um, or some extra efforts in obedience. Because those things, as good as they are in themselves, if they're abstracted from the Bible, will actually do the opposite of what you want them to do. In other words, the Bible contains a central message that keeps us from looking at those things and turning them into hoops through which we think we must jump. The truth of the matter is, the word of God and spirituality are inseparable. As a matter of fact, spirituality itself is responding to the written word. That's why we go to it and center it in everything that we do and say. That's what we mean when we say that the Bible is sufficient in that sense. Okay, so certainty and sufficiency. Thirdly, though, and really one of the main things I wanted to center on this morning, is the Bible and authenticity. Because this is what I want to focus on. Why is it that the rich man is wrong, right? The rich man says, blah, blah, blah. No, you know, what we need really is something cooler, like somebody coming back from the dead. And if Lazarus did that, my brothers would be like, oh, he was dead. Now he's alive again. How did that happen? Of course they become Christians. 
But Father Abraham's like, no, nope, they're not going to. <laughs> if they ignore the word, they're not going to. Why does Father Abraham suggest that Scripture alone is the only thing that can create genuine trust in his word? I suggest to you this morning what Jesus is saying is that the best evidence for the truthfulness of the Bible is the Bible itself. That is that the Bible stands alone. The scripture is critiqued by no one but itself. It is a believing person's final authority. It is authentic in that sense. Let me see if I can put it a little more obnoxiously. Les, why do you believe that the Bible is true? Answer, because it says that it is. Now, I'm purposely trying to trigger all of the smart people in the room who are saying to yourself, oh, finally we've come to it. Now we know that you guys are just another one of those fundamentalist churches that I hear about on TV. You're asking me to come in and accept something that I don't even have any idea whether it makes sense on the inside because I'm supposed to have faith. Is that what you're going to tell me? In other words, the truth of the matter is I'm not that kind of person. I don't just take things on face value. I need some kind of proof. And your belief less in the Bible is arbitrary. Maybe you weren't that ugly about it, but some people say things like that in their minds, right? Look, I want, to wrestle, I want to wrestle with that topic very honestly, as much as I can in our closing time here, with three simple thoughts uh, to address that. And the first one is simply this. If you think that what I'm saying now is that what you really need is to take a blind leap of faith, you've misheard me. Uh, oftentimes when I would talk to college students about uh, difficulties with the Bible, uh, invariably, a well-meaning Christian would say, well, of course the Bible doesn't make any sense. Of course it's got internal contradictions. Of course we have no idea how we got to the Bible that we have. But that's why you have to have faith. You ever heard that? You ever thought that? Can I just simply say, that's not what I'm saying, because I don't think that's how the Bible <laughs> deals with it. Because it's not honest. It's not tenable either. The Bible wants to engage our intellect so that we know that when we come to the Bible, we have something that is trustworthy of putting our trust into it. So I'm not asking you to be like, blah, 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 no problems with the Bible, just believe it. That ain't it. Secondly, though, this simple point. We believe that the Bible is the last word because it has to be. Now look, don't get lost here, but for some of you, you need to put on your thinking cap for a second. Because the Bible is the revelation of a God, yes, but not any kind of God, certainly not some kind of benign deity. And my point this morning is that you have to keep in mind the kind of God that the Bible is presenting before you question the ways in which he's going to reveal himself. That was an important sentence. I shall say it again. We have to remember what kind of God we're dealing with before we start to ask questions about how he's going to reveal himself. Because this is what the Bible says. It says that the God of the Bible is not contingent. He's not derived. The God of the Bible is not someone who leans upon something else or someone else for his own existence. He is self-existent. He is self-contained. The theologians will use the word God's aseity. It's the attribute of the fact that his, his, his existence comes purely out of the fullness of his own being. That's the God who is revealed in the Bible. And if you don't remember him, you're not going to properly frame the question, which is simply this. If that kind of God was going to speak to us, 
His word has to be where all of our reasoning stops. Why? Well, let me see if I can illustrate this for a second. Let's say that you own a company and you are getting together a presentation uh, to try to win over a certain client. This is a big client. The future of your company is going to depend on you landing this account. Well, when you finally finish that presentation, why did you not hand that presentation to your second grader and ask them to kind of go through it and critique it for you? Now, look, no offense against your second grader. I'm sure they're crazy gifted, more gifted than all the other children, I'm sure. <laughs> the reason why you didn't do that, though, is because your intellect and the intellect of the second grader has such a great distance between it that you would never submit that to them. Okay, so follow it. <laughs> if there is a God, like the Bible reveals, and he was going to write a book, then who else is going to proofread that paper? Does that make sense? Christianity teaches that Bible is not just a collection of religious sayings that were kind of passed down through the ages, but that they are the very words of God. And for that reason, there is no higher authority to which a Christian can appeal than what the self-contained God has spoken. When that kind of God speaks, who exactly is going to check him on it? Look, this is the reason why we use the language that the Bible is self attesting. It attests to its own authority. Now, do not hear me saying by that, that we somehow, there's y'all's Christians, you're afraid of examination. You just don't want people to question that Bible, whether it's internally consistent, whether it's been passed along, but then faithful ways over church history. Uh, that's actually not what I'm saying. And we're going to deal with those very kind of questions later on in this series. <laughs> I would make an argument that there is no other book in antiquity that's come under the scrutiny like the Bible has. And by the way, come out smelling like a rose every single time. What we're simply saying is, is that when all of a sudden you begin to wrestle with what the Bible is, we realize that this thing could only be verified by him alone. If an all-knowing, all-powerful God is going to speak, if he decides to do that, only he can verify it. I realize for many of you are saying, I still don't like it because this is a circular argument. You're assuming what you have yet to prove. Okay, be very careful before you level that. Because if you really start to press yourself on it, you realize that in order to say that you know anything, you have to trust something. Do you not? It may be that you say, well, you know, Les, I'm one of those people that I trust the science. The science. <laughs> As if that's a uniform thing. I trust the science less. And again, Christians are not anti-science, quite the opposite. What we're simply saying is though, but how do you know that science is the way to that truth? Well, because science has demonstrated it. Okay, so empiricism demonstrates the truth of empiricism. That's arguing in a circle. Because, and I'm not upset about it, because every time that you argue for your most fundamental conviction of life, you have to argue in a circle. You may say, I trust the opinion polls. I trust the experts. I listen to my gurus, whatever. But to say that you know something means that you're trusting in something. The Christian's just saying, I'm stopping with the Bible. The Bible's revelation of the self-contained God. Third thought, and I'll finish with this one. The Bible is the last word because human beings are not objective. Like I think the, I find the Bible has a very deeply compelling take on how we interact with the Bible because of the fact that human beings are just not objective arbitrators of truth. 
I mean, most objections to the Bible, or Christianity in general for that matter, make an assumption that a human being is an uninfluenced, uh, uh, unbiased judge of what can and cannot be true. We posture ourselves that way, right? <laughs> but this is just not the case. And the funny thing is, is we all know it. Um, let's take for an example, a, a young lady who, who in college suffers with an eating disorder, anorexia, right? Everybody can see her condition. Everyone can give her the truth. But you suddenly find out it's as if she's got an anti-skinny bias built inside of her that won't allow her to hear that. Well, the Bible says that in mankind's natural humanity, he is born with an anti-God bias. We begin the story as rebels against the knowledge of God. We ain't neutral. And for that reason, the facts themselves, we take and we mold them into our own selfish and godless ends. So much so that I think it's true we can say that the facts really don't speak for themselves from a Christian worldview. Humans cannot just be presented with information and trusted to do the right thing with it. I, I love that. How oftentimes in our political discourse we're like, well, what the people need is more education. If we should just educate the young people about the dangers of whatever it is you're upset about, right? But isn't there an assumption that people will do the right thing with the right information? And yes, that is an assumption. It's a statement about the way humanity works. Reminds me of an old joke my father used to tell, which I, I realize don't, they don't fly well among you. I don't know what the story is. What, what do you have against my father? I'm kidding. So they used to tell this joke about a crazy person who went into a psychiatrist's office and uh, said, you know, doctor, I'm, I'm, I need to see you because uh, I'm dead. And the doctor's like, you've come to the right place. And he looks at him and says, okay, well, let's talk about this for a second. Here's a question for you. Is it true that dead men bleed? Crazy man's like, well, I guess not. Not if they're dead. He's like, okay, great. So he grabs his finger, pricks it on the end, and out comes a big red drop of blood. And the crazy person looks and goes, oh, what do you know? Dead men do bleed. Okay, that was funnier than I thought it was. Good, you liked it. What's the point? He's so committed to him being dead that even when evidence to the contrary presents itself, it doesn't get through. What's the point? Look at verse 31. Jesus says, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced. It's a question of what is compelling for people. Even if someone rises from the dead, I love that. Who's Jesus talking about? <laughs> when he's saying rising from the dead, he's going to guess what? I'm going to rise from the dead. And it's still not going to be compelling for people. Someone's already risen from the dead. We still don't believe. His point is this. As sinful creatures, we are not objective in dealing with the facts. I had a therapist one time ask me this question. They said, Les, if you were being deceived, would you know it? No. Because <laughs> I'm being deceived. That's the definition of being deceived, that I won't know that I'm being deceived. What's the point? The point is most of the deception in our lives comes from the outside in, does it not? And the way to break that deception is for someone simply to tell me the truth. But what happens when, as the Bible says, the deception comes from the inside? The call is coming from inside the house. <laughs> the deception is coming from within my own framework of way of looking at the world. What that means then is the most fundamental need of any human being who longs to know God is to get a word from the outside. I don't think I could have said anything more countercultural to this generation who has, who has elevated, as one writer put it, the, 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 the um, tyranny of the psychologized self. I am what I declare myself to be. 
I am the product of my subjective desires at any given time. That is who I am. Reality itself only extends from me. Nothing could be more contrary to the Bible's worldview. The Bible's saying just the opposite. Whatever's coming out of you is actually the very thing that's hurting you. What you desperately need is someone to crack through the shell from the outside in. Look, what if Jesus was the very word come in flesh and even more decided to reveal himself most substantively upon his return back to his father through a book? What if he did that? That would mean a couple of things. The first thing it would mean is this. It would mean that perhaps it might behoove me <laughs> to find my way into the study of the contents of that book. Maybe I could join. Maybe I could start a small group of people who sat together on a semi-regular basis to simply say, for whatever else I'm going to do this week, I'm not sure there's something more important that I could do than spend a little more time trying to digest the contents of the pages of this book. But the second thing is this. It also means that your presence here this morning with a Bible open up in your lap is the most dangerous possible place that you can be if you're committed to the status quo in your life. It's a terribly dangerous place to be. I wouldn't advise it <laughs> to be here if that's your commitment. Because as we begin to look through this study of the nature of Scripture, you're going to find that it comes with its own power built in. Its own working, it does, it does its work on us and in us and through us. Oftentimes in ways, some people will say, with me kicking and screaming all the way in. And so my invitation for you this morning is, come join us again. I dare you. <laughs> As we see what God's word does in us. Let's pray. The Lord Jesus, would you lead us to this table in the anticipation of tasting and seeing that you are good even as we have looked and seen it true in your word, we also ask that you would make it true in our souls as well. Help us, Father, as we worship, for we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. As the elders are coming forward, I simply want to remind you very briefly of the fact that Jesus says that he was the word become flesh. And that is, of the whole lot of things for which that means, it means that his body and his blood are at least equally vital to the Christian's sustenance, spiritually speaking, uh, as the word is. That's kind of the reasons why you hear oftentimes whenever church people start to talk about the Bible, we oftentimes will say word and sacrament. They go together in the life of God's people when we talk about what God has given us. So what that means then is the same sufficiency that we look to in the Bible is in some respects given to us here at this table as God's real spiritual presence comes here. And so for that reason, we come expectantly when we come forward for the power that God comes and brings in our life through these particular sacraments. And we do so expectantly. Um, it is our um, uh, tradition at this church to come forward to receive uh, the Lord's Supper. There will be elders or elder at each of the various sections, and you just come forward to the section that's in front of you. Uh, we make little semicircles while we're up here, a couple rows at a time, of about eight to ten people, and the elders will distribute the elements to you. Hang on to those for just a second until the elder says something like the gifts of God for the people of God. Partake of both elements together as a group, and then you can exit out the sides where there are trash receptacles where you can place uh, the rest that you have over. I don't say this often enough, but I do think it's important for you to realize this is not Christ's Prez's table. 
Uh, this table is Jesus' table, and so anyone who is a member in good standing of any Bible-believing church uh, is welcome to this table, and you are invited to come here. We also love it when you bring your children forward. Uh, we do ask, though, that you wait and withhold the elements from your child until they have made their own profession of faith as a full community member in a church. It may very well be that an elder might even ask you uh, if the child is communing or not uh, when they come forward. But if not, maybe they might even offer a prayer for them as they come forward but we want this to be something that's here for your family. Sound good? Let's pray then before we start. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would then set these elements apart from a common use to a holy use, that in so partaking in faith, by faith, you would fill us with your presence, that we would know that you are good, even as the food goes inside of our bodies, may you bring spiritual nourishment to us. Would you do that? For we ask it all in Jesus' name, amen.